BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. That's right, The Bill Press Show on this Friday, May 3rd, 2019. Good morning, good morning. I am Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press as the chair for some reason. Did it just, did you? It's just, I'm, I'm, I'm being lowered, lowered into the ground. We put hydraulics on that. I, I could like, tell, yeah. I could tell. My goodness, maybe, we'll, maybe, maybe I'll switch out into one of the other ones here because it's actually kind of kind of fun. I, I don't know. Uh, Buddy Gorvolsky filling in for Bill Press. So much to talk about today uh, because what a week we've had with Attorney General Bob Barr refusing to testify between before the House Judiciary Committee and Democrats warning that they may hold the country's law, inf- the highest law enforcement official in the country in contempt. We'll get to all of that, but first... This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, so uh, this is a cautionary tale. Oh, yes. Uh, This is a story of a man who went to Hawaii's uh, Kilauea Volcano, which you can go visit. I've never been to Hawaii. You know, neither have I. Uh, But they do have it set up as like a national park. You can go to these volcanoes. You can get relatively close, but they put metal railings around areas where you could fall and seriously injure yourself, right? 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 As long as you pay attention to those metal railings and don't climb over them. Oh, you're not supposed to climb over them. You're not supposed to climb over those railings, which is what one man did. He climbed over so he could get a better look at the volcano, and he slipped and he fell off of a 300-foot cliff. He only fell 70 feet. Spoiler alert. He survived. Oh, good. He survived. Well, I would have been I so upset if I, he would have started the morning with a story and well, then he died. Look, let me just say, I'm not wishing the guy to die, but like, there's a reason that you shouldn't climb you these shouldn't things. You shouldn't climb and, the railings. You know, there's a, there's a Darwin effect going on here, right? My mama always told me, don't climb the railings don't around a Hawaiian no volcano. Don't climb no metal railings around no <laughs> volcanoes. Uh, the guy is fine. They had to airlift him out of there. He did sustain some serious injuries, but he is going to be okay. Oh, good. He's going to be okay, except for the fact that he's just a little bit stupid. Well, now he knows not to do that. 
We lost a big uh, name in the showbiz industry yesterday, Igor. I don't I... normally do obituaries in this segment, but I'm going to here because we said farewell to Peter Mayhew. A lot of people might not know who Peter Mayhew is, uh, but real fans know Peter Mayhew was the original and only Chewbacca from the Star Wars movies. He played Chewbacca. Uh, he, he came back for these recent reboots. Uh, they've been using him as well, but he passed away yesterday. He lived in North Texas. Uh, he's a very large man, tall guy. And in fact, he had a lot of spinal problems. And last year, he underwent a pretty serious spinal surgery in an effort to sort of improve his mobility. Uh, and it didn't work very well. So oh. he was sort of bedridden, uh, wasn't doing well. And he finally passed away at the age of 74. So well, safe home to Peter Mayhew. We were uh, driving to an event yesterday, and my boyfriend got the alert on his phone that this oh. had happened. And he gasped very loudly, and I wondered, oh, my God, what has happened? And he told me. I did not know who he was. Are you, I a, have Star, not are you seen, a Star Wars guy? I haven't seen a single Star Wars movie, uh, but I'm sad that he Wait passed. a minute. I have not. Wait a Star Wars or Star Trek, no. A single Star Wars movie? I have not, no. It's just not my kind of movie. You it's don't not, like science fiction at I all? I don't like science fiction at all. It's very rare that you I would watch You don't feel like you got a little fiction. bit of FOMO? No, from, like, not even a little bit. Not even a tiny Will you watch one Star Wars movies with me? Will you watch with like, you the first I will. With you, I will. Would you just sit down yeah, whatever the, the best one. one. But you got to pick one. you got to pick well, the best one. Well, you can't just one. pick the best one. you got to watch the first one because it lays out the whole story. you got to watch A New Hope. And it still holds up. When did it come out? It still holds up? Uh, it's in the 70s. Uh, I, uh, for a lot of people, I think a part of it is a nostalgia factor. So you got one shot. You got one shot, Peter. But I it don't better wanna, be good. I mean, there are better ones than the first one, but I, I feel like it wouldn't make sense unless you watch the first one to understand it all. If anybody has any ideas about how to combat let's, this, find us on Twitter know. at BP Show, because I, I really want to get you into the world of Star Wars. You don't have to be obsessed with it, but you <laughs> Listen, should at least Listen, many people have tried. All have oh, failed. man. All right. This is the Bill Press Show. May 3rd, 2019. Good morning, good morning. I am Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press. By the way, I recently wrote a book. <laughs> here it is. Oh, look just at that. happens to be here. It's called Guts Down, How to Defeat the NRA, Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. If I could just say, uh, you are one of the most... Uh, one of the hardest working men in show business. Oh, uh, oh if well, anybody follows you on the Instagram, uh, which I do, the Gram, uh, you see you're all over the place. You've been on a book tour. You've been talking about the good work that you do at Guns Down. You've been talking about your book. Well, uh, I've taken the message to the people. You know, are. it's really exciting actually traveling uh, around the country, talking to folks about a bolder vision for reducing gun deaths. And I am on a book tour right now, uh, gunsdowntour.com, gunsdowntour.com, if you want to see our dates there and come out. Uh, what we're doing, Peter, is we're hosting town halls all across the country in partnership with the wonderful progressive local organizations uh, all around America, talking about what we could do, because we could all do something to help build a future with fewer guns. Look, uh, it takes a long time to achieve legislative action, to achieve change on the federal level. And the problem is, is that Americans are dying today 
Uh, and so the goal of this tour is to have real conversations about what uh, campaigns uh, we could all plug into and how we can all play our part to make America a safer place, to make America a uh, country with fewer guns. You know, it, it's interesting. I, I've worked in uh, um, talk radio, political radio, for quite some time now. And there used to be a rule. Uh, there are a couple of sort of uh, things you don't talk about. Uh, abortion, death penalty, one of them has always been guns. And it's been really fascinating to watch over the years how that has completely changed. Well, it uh, has you know, we're completely We're at a point now changed. where you have to have the conversation. You know, Peter, I started working in politics in 2007, and I didn't have to even think about guns, much less talk about them, before the Newtown shooting in December of 2012. And I remember when the Newtown shooting happened and I was working at Think Progress and I was running uh, the coverage of, of Newtown, of, of Sandy Hook, certainly of the legislative effort that happened in the aftermath of that shooting, uh, the effort to pass background checks. And I remember thinking to myself, because I had to cover this stuff, well, this is going to be my big opportunity to learn about gun policy because I had didn't know anything about it despite working fairly deeply in progressive politics uh, for for the past several years. Uh, and now you're right. That has really changed. And you have uh, presidential candidates uh, really thinking about what else, what more they can do on this issue, how they can go beyond uh, simply background checks. And I think they really understand that that this year when Americans running uh, for president have all kinds of bold ideas, that it's time for bold ideas on, on this issue, on it, guns. It's also really interesting, I think, uh, I'm, I'm slightly older than you, uh, but I remember I was a freshman in college when Columbine happened. Oh, yeah, you're much older then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh. I remember, I'll tell you, I remember where I, where I was when Columbine. I was in sixth grade okay. when Columbine happened, and we were just celebrating, mm. as you know, the 20th anniversary in April, commemorating yeah. the 20th yeah, yeah, anniversary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it, you know, a lot of people who uh, uh, sort of their first exposure, I think, to the, the horrors of gun violence, especially when it comes to the schools, uh, was Columbine. And those people now have kids who are in school, uh, and it's horrifying to think that in that 20-year span, uh, how much worse things have gotten. Yeah. Because that was a moment in our country that we all looked at what happened in Columbine, and we said, how could we allow this to happen? And now, Columbine... When you look at it through the scope of every horrible gun uh, uh, shoot, shooting, school shooting, or workplace shooting, or all these things that have happened since then, I mean, it's a blip on the radar. You know, I was in uh, Littleton, Colorado, uh, of course, the site of Columbine High School, several weeks ago, just before the anniversary of that shooting, and just before... Uh, the woman who flew from Miami to Denver and terrorized that entire community with a long gun um, just before that incident happened. And I spoke to high school students who were organizing a local chapter 
uh, of, uh, of a gun organization. I sat in on their meeting and they talked about uh, how they planned to run this organization, what they were going to focus on, what was important to them. And what really struck me, Peter, and part of the reason why I'm actually fairly optimistic when it comes to this question, is the gun issue is has been so internalized by students and young people across America in a way that you and I never felt. Right. Because the threat didn't feel the same. And there's no question in their mind, there's no question in the mind of their peers that they're going to continue fighting on this issue until it's fundamentally resolved. When we were in Indianapolis this past weekend, I was there for the NRA convention, and we hosted an event, uh, kind of a counter-programming to the NRA. Uh, By the way, if I, I just have to say, your your Instagram uh, uh, material from when you were in in the uh, uh, Indianapolis was amazing at how they just papered the town and put yes. all these photos up of the NRA leaders, these goblins. You know, I've been to a lot of different conventions. Sure, I've never known an organization to post the faces of their leaders yeah. on like city bridges really weird. all around town. It was very weird. And someone who was born in a communist country <laughs> recognizes that <laughs> <laughs> for the wacky behavior that it is. Yeah. <laughs> but listen, we, we filmed the fun video uh, that's going to be released soon with our partners at Now This, uh, where we talked to... Uh, people who attended the convention uh, got their take on a whole bunch of different things and then uh, did a fun experiment uh, about, not a fun experiment, but did an experiment showing how uh, easy it is to buy a gun in Indiana Indiana, uh, and bring it into Chicago. Because what we heard during those conversations with the NRA attendees was gun control doesn't work, Peter, because Chicago has a lot of gun crime. Now, it does have a lot of gun crime, but 60% of the guns used in crime in Chicago come from out of state. Uh, and so we showed how, uh, how there's no wall between Indiana and Illinois and how one can bring a gun. But just well, you to, know what? You got to build a wall. You got to build the wall. There you you got to build the wall. There you go. <laughs> uh, let me just make one final point about Indiana and then let's turn to, to Bob Barr. Um, Bill Barr. Bill Barr. Bill Barr. Who's Bob? Bob Barr is the there Georgia is congressman. There is a Bob Barr. Right? The Georgia congressman. The uh, Bob Barr. His name is Bob, Bob Barr from Barr. Georgia. There yeah. was a Bob Barr from Georgia. Yeah. 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 This is Bill Barr. This is Bill Barr. No relation? No relation. I, I oh, who knows? There's Let's also find Roseanne out. Barr. Roseanne Barr. Yeah. I don't oh, know. God, Roseanne Barr. Who's, it's Sorry, like, I don't if know you were going to rank it on who's worse, I don't know how yeah, you that's would. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. So I was in Indiana hosting this event, talking about. Uh, a different, bolder vision for reducing gun deaths in America. And a student, Peter, introduced me, and I think she would maybe a freshman in college, and she gave this, she gave several remarks about the problem of, of gun violence for her generation. And she said the following line, which really shook me, and then when I got up there, I echoed it. She said, we go to school even though we know it could be our graveyard. Good grief. We go to school, even though we know it could be our graveyard. Two days after uh, I spoke at that church and, and I met her, her name's Emma, there was a shooting at UNCC, another shooting, right, at UNCC, where uh, I think it was one person died, 
so that one person went to school and it became their graveyard. That's the that's the problem we're facing in this country. You know, I, I this is not a necessarily a, a unique experience. I think anybody who has kids has this experience, right? But I have a child who's about to go into high school. Uh, he's fourteen years old. Yeah, I know. Next he's year's going school. to high school next already. Next year is high school. Can you believe that? Stop it. Uh, and they have gun drills at school, like yeah. active shooter drills. Yeah. And they do them a couple times a year, and they've been doing this since he's been in school. I never had any of those when Neither I was did in school. I. Uh, as I mentioned, I was out of grade school by the time that Columbine happened. And then there was, you know, I, I think it's really been in the last, you know, probably 10, 15 years that the, the, the scourge of gun violence has really been taken seriously by schools. Yeah. Um, in the time that he's been in school, every single year there is some new security measure. So if I have to go pick him up from school for a doctor's appointment or anything like that, used to be you could walk in the front door. Here, I'm, pick, I'm here to pick mm-hmm. up my child. Right? Now, you can't walk in the front door. You have to buzz in first. They have to a video thing that they have to see you. You have to go in through this separate little containment area that's all bulletproof, and then you have to walk in. The door closes behind you. Then you get to go into the... Uh, it's like it's a whole thing. And the, the lengths that we have gone to uh, make things safer without addressing the actual problem, the amount of money that's been spent is insane. I mean, the Completely insane. that we have gone to protect students for once the round leaves the chamber and leaves leaves the gun while paying so little attention to ensuring that people can't sit, just very easily get guns in the first place is shocking to me. Which is why I argue uh, in the book and elsewhere that what we have to do is really stop talking about this problem as getting guns out of the hands of dangerous people. That simply doesn't make sense in a country where two-thirds of gun deaths are suicides. And what we instead have to talk about and how every other nation has solved the problem is by talking about raising the standards for gun ownership, changing the environment in which guns are owned and guns are produced because changing the environment for everybody means you're making everybody safer from gun violence. Folks, what we're trying to say is buy the book. But yes, oh yes, oh you do you want to see it again? There it is again. Here it is there again. It is. Guns down, uh available now. It's going to be uh, a month since it came out uh, in a couple of days, which is so hard to believe because I feel like it just came out yesterday. Congrats. Uh but we're coming up on uh, on a month. Thank you. Thank you. Um and one more thing on guns uh before we go uh is the Florida legislature yesterday voted yes to arming teachers. This is the Florida House of Representatives passed a bill allowing teachers to carry guns in the classroom. The Senate had approved the measure uh, beforehand. It now heads to Republican Governor Ron DeSantis's desk. Now, this is the Guardian program in Florida, which came to be in the aftermath of the Parkland shooting. And the bill says that teachers who volunteer to carry a gun on campus... So if you're a teacher, you can volunteer to carry a gun. You will need to undergo screening. You will need 144 hours of training. uh, And then you can carry a gun in the classroom with the thought, with the goal being 
that you can somehow stop an active shooter. <laughs> now, what we know is that there's no evidence whatsoever that a teacher who's armed, despite this 144 hours of training, can stop an active shooter in a chaotic environment if there's an active shooter and with uh, a whole bunch of different students. And what we also know is that uh, if you look at the top four school shootings in uh, the last year, they all had an armed guard. They all had armed security. And uh, that security could not stop the shooter. And oftentimes these kinds of shooters actually crave a gunfight and want to have a shootout. Uh, and my goodness, arming teachers and putting more guns in classrooms will actually endanger the very students that it's meant to protect. And we see stories all the time in local newspapers of guns going off and teachers leaving their guns in the bathroom and on the bleachers and students finding those guns. It's a really incredibly dangerous solution uh, to, to a problem that, frankly, uh, other nations have solved, other states have made progress in solving, and so maybe we should look at what they've done to curb gun deaths, and surprise, surprise, none of them have given people more guns. So anyway, that's in Florida. That bill is moving to the governor's desk. Uh, he is likely going to sign it, uh, and now teachers in Florida, if they so choose, are going to be able to carry a gun. Uh, well, for, for, for every step forward, we make uh, some step backwards. Um, but let's just quickly talk about uh, Bob Barr. Uh, Bill Barr. The, goodness gracious. See, now I have it in the wrong. Bill Barr. I was in my head. Is it Bill or is it Bob? It's Bill. It's Bill Barr. William Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, testified in a contentious hearing on Wednesday before the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee where he defended his release, the Barr summary of the Mueller report and swatted back at claims that he had misled Congress when he told a previous hearing at a, in the lower chamber that he didn't know why uh, why Bob Mueller or the investigators uh, uh, had concerns with how he had handled the situation. But of course he did know because as he prepared on Wednesday to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee, a letter was released from Bob Mueller to uh, Bill Barr uh, that came uh, just as he, uh, days after he released uh, the Barr summary, saying that his summary had caused confusion in the public about uh, the investigation and the findings of the investigation. Uh, and so how does uh, Bill Barr uh, explain that? Uh, he told the Senate on Wednesday that he wasn't referring to Bob Mueller when he claimed that he did not know why uh, he uh, could be upset. He was referring to the staff, you see, to the staff of Bob Mueller. He did not know why the individual investigators who comprised Bob Mueller's team and worked for Bob Mueller, why each one of them was upset 
But he knew, of course, why Bob was upset, because they had spoken on the phone. Uh, Democrats in Congress, of course, upon learning about this letter, uh, uh, rightly so, uh, became outraged, particularly after Bill Barr failed to show up at a hearing on Thursday before the uh, democratically controlled House Judiciary Committee because he did not want to be subjected to questions from a staff lawyer, from lawyer on the Democratic side and on the Republican side. So he did not show, uh, leading Democrats to consider holding Barr in contempt. Here is Nancy Pelosi yesterday saying that Bill Barr may have committed a crime. The Attorney General of the United States of America was not telling the truth to the Congress of the United States. That's a crime. The point here is that nobody, not the president, not Bill Barr, nobody, she says, is above the law. Nobody is above the law, not the president of the United States and not the attorney general. I mean, it's it's obvious that lying to Congress is very, very bad. Not a good idea. It's a terrible idea, no matter who you are. It's an especially bad idea if you are the Attorney General of the United States. Because there goes your credibility. I mean, it's out the window. It's out the window. Um, of course, <laughs> looking at this, we were going over sound yesterday, and it just makes me laugh. Uh, 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 Congressman uh, McCarthy spoke to cameras and defended uh, Bill Barr. Here he is. There's no collusion, and I believe it's time for our country to move forward. Yeah, this is Kevin McCarthy, the top Democrat in the House, claiming that— Republican. Republican. Republican, uh, I'm sorry, Republican. You're not great with names. Republican. Top Republican in the House, Kevin McCarthy from California, claiming that uh, Bill Barr, he says, uh, did not lie. Apparently he's buying—he's buying his explanation that when he told Congress that he didn't know— uh, if uh, Bob Mueller was upset uh, that he wasn't actually talking about Bob Mueller. He was talking about Bob Mueller's investigators. I, I do not believe uh, Attorney General Barr lied. I believe he's been very transparent in all of this. Um, I think if, there, if people are looking at who has lied in the process, simply look at Chairman Nadler. Okay. All right, so a very hard-to-believe <laughs> cover story that makes it look like you didn't commit a crime and Republicans easily believe it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. That right? we, remember when we were asking back in 2017, when will they stand up to him? When will they, uh, you know, take responsibility for their constitutionally elected office to the responsibilities of that office, to the responsibilities of serving a constituency in a democracy of acting like a co-equal branch of government. When, we used to ask, when will that happen? The answer, as we learn every single day, is never. It will never, never happen. Anyway, we'll get into uh, the latest with Bill Barr, including... Uh, the hope here by Democrats to sideline Barr as all of this uh, moves forward. Uh, you know, this is someone who during his confirmation hearings promised that Bob Mueller will be able to finish his investigation without interference. But what I think surprised a lot of folks, particularly in Congress and across America, 
is that Bill Barr, a man who's been in government for a long time, who has uh, the respect of colleagues on both sides of the aisle, that he would become the shield for Trump that Trump himself has long looked for, right? You remember when Jeff Sessions, this chair, I, I'm just going to go all the way up here, so it'll take more time for me to come back down. <laughs> when Bill, when uh, Jeff Sessions was the attorney general and recused himself from the Russian investigation, Donald Trump, of course, re- expressed a lot of concern that where was his uh, attorney general shielding and helping him? Um, uh, now he found that man in Bill Barr. Uh, who's, uh, you know, tarnishing his own reputation, tarnishing the role and the standing of the Justice Department and acting as the top uh, law enforcement official in the country and doing his best to shield the president, um, shield the president who appointed him without any regard, any regard at all for, you know, basic things like truth telling, um, or being transparent with the American people. Uh, where do we go from here? We'll talk to Alexander Bolton, uh, a reporter for The Hill, who's been covering this story inside and out. Uh, the next steps that Democrats hope to take, because look, uh, there's still this debate within the party. Should they impeach? Should they not impeach? There's a school of thought that says, well, let's just hold hearings. Maybe we won't call it impeachment. We'll hold a a series of hearings to educate Americans uh, about the contents of the Mueller report. Uh, It now looks like that strategy is going to be a little harder than they anticipated with the White House uh, blocking subpoenas, ignoring subpoenas, and with Barr now refusing to appear before the House. So it's tricky. It's uh, you know, it, it, that, that's that's the that's the question. How do you move forward in this direction while at the same time talking to the American people about the issues that they care about as you gear up for an election? How do you strike that balance and how do you avoid the entire election season becoming embroiled in this kind of drama? While we know that polls show and and most Americans will tell you and the presidential candidates will tell you as they travel the country that it's not like anybody's really raising their hand and asking to know the latest greatest about Bill Barr. Well, it's the investigation. You know, we we talk about this a lot on this show. Uh, You know, I I think that the Mueller report has a a, a great amount of appeal for uh, people like us. Uh, people who listen to this show, right? Like you follow politics a lot more closely yeah. uh, than your average American. Um, I, I don't think that the majority of America really cares about the gritty details, especially with a story that is that goes as deep as this one does. I mean, this this is decades in the making. If you look at how far back the Trump Russia relationship goes, and you know, who Donald Trump is and the entirety of his presidency has been fighting against this. Uh, I don't know that everybody cares about it as much as we do. No, I don't think they do. And I think views of the president are also baked in. So if you are on his side, the Mueller report's not going to sway you. If you oppose him, 
the Mueller report, uh, you, 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 you're already there, right? So what is the goal then with a divided country of continuing to suck up all of the oxygen with uh, Mueller with this report? Uh, we'll find out uh, from Alexander Bolton. He's a reporter for The Hill. He's going to join us next on this Friday, May 3rd edition of The Bill Press Show. Stay with us. This is The Bill Press Show. That's right, The Bill Press Show. It is Friday, May 3rd, 2019, and we're left to put the puzzle pieces back together of the week that was. Alexander Bolton is a reporter for The Hill on Twitter at Alexander Bolton. Yeah, that's right, Alexander Bolton. I thought there was another letter in there, but there's not. You have a common name, but you've been able to snag that Twitter handle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Nobody wanted Igor Volsky, by the way. I just came and waltzed waltzed on in, took Igor Volsky. Nobody wanted it. It was fully available, fully available for anyone. Igor's not great with names. Not great with names. Yeah, I um, I'm not going to tell the stories here, mm-hmm. but uh, in the in the time that I've been hosting this show, I've uh, uh, screwed up people's names in a way that you can't even in your deepest dreams imagine. Um, but so I think everyone today a, is, is there's a rule here pronounce. that when they book guests, when I guest host, that the names be simple. That if it's anything long or a you little need, complicated, you need you need uh, some you need big cards. People yeah, need to hold right. up cards Well, you would the, think that would help, right? The, you would the, imagine that would help. Control booth needs to hold up cards with the you know <laughs> phonetics, like, like in Saturday Night Live. By the way, just, didn't work. Didn't work. Tried we that, tried. We've work. tried all kinds of things. It just and doesn't. With apologies to Gabriel De Benedetti and Gabriel Matt Benedetti, I know, no. they are not allowed to come back on the show when you host. Yeah, them that second name I can't say. <laughs> Gabe De Benedetti has oh, been. Well, it has seared into my brain because I had to write him an entire email apologizing. Who was the other guy? I can't. I don't even. Just give it a shot. Uh, well, well, I, but Matt Vassilagombros? Matt Vassilagombros. Vassal hey, you there, you Vassal, Vassal yeah. there you go. Vassilagombros. There you go. I can do it. Well, Alexander, <laughs> thank you for having such a simple name. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. Uh, let's talk about uh, Attorney General uh, Bill Barr, uh-huh. not Bob Barr, Igor, Bill Barr. Uh, and uh, the latest with Democrats now considering holding the Attorney General in contempt. Here's Nancy Pelosi yesterday uh, claiming that uh, Bill Barr withheld the truth and may have lied to a House committee. How sad it is for us to see the top law enforcement officer in our country representing withholding the truth from the Congress of the United States. And the bottom line for Pelosi is that nobody, not the president, not Bill Barr, nobody is above the law. Nobody is above the law, not the president of the United States and not the attorney general. So, Alexander, give me, lay out the dynamics for us here. Uh, Bill Barr refusing to testify before the House Judiciary Committee because he didn't like the format which sounded like he didn't want to be questioned by staff lawyers uh, on either side, Mm -hmm. refusing to show up, and Democrats now having to figure out, well, what are they going to do about it? Mm -hmm. Well, the dynamic is that this is going to get figured out by the courts. Uh, That's where it's going to wind up. But I think really, but well, that's if Barr continues in his position of refusing to appear before the House. And there there are other examples of, Trump administration officials not wanting to appear before the House. Um, I think now they're probably going to go ahead and at some point subpoena some of the key witnesses here, whether it's Don McGahn or Donald Trump Jr. or Eric Prince, um, maybe even Jared Kushner, 
So I think there are going to be a lot of subpoenas to be uh, to be hashed out, to be uh, fought over in the courts. And so this is the beginning. And huh. um, it's you know it's it's unusual you know given that this investigation has gone on for 22 months, it, it's such a high profile issue. It is weird that the attorney general isn't going to appear before the House Judiciary Committee to talk about this report. I mean, this is a this isn't a frivolous request by any means. It's a it's it is a core piece of oversight given that this investigation's gone on for so long for so much money. So I think that the uh, I think Barr will have to show up at some point, but I think what he's doing is he's uh, he's putting the brakes on on this process. He's just dragging it out because the longer it takes. Bar to show up before the committee, the longer it takes to process the subpoena for the full unredacted report. Then you then you have to then you have a subpoena maybe for Don McGahn. Then you have a subpoena for maybe Donald Trump Jr. So, so he's just know, dragging his feet to buy I some think more you wanna, time. I think you want to drag. Look, you. I think you want to drag this out at least beyond the 2020 election, and you want to drag it out for as long as you can. And so you don't, you know, you don't say yes right away, but I think yeah. you'll say yes eventually. So I, I can't imagine that Bar just doesn't show up. To talk about this report, I mean, you know, this is a major oversight function. Okay, Democrats control the House, but you can't ignore it. Completely. But in an administration yeah. where they're happy to break the rules, where precedent doesn't matter, where they feel like they're just going to set the new norm, it, with a president who has promised to comply with nothing, right? Completely kind of shredding Congress's oversight function. Um, I don't know. It, it's hard. It's it's hard to see uh, unless, as you point out, we we start going down the kind of the court route, and this will drag on and on and on. Uh, that there's certainly that it. You know, I remember when the I remember it was a month ago, but I remember mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> when the report came out. There's this real great debate between the in the party. And what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Are you going to hold impeachment hearings? Or are you just going to hold a series of hearings mm-hmm. to educate the public mm-hmm. on what's in the report mm-hmm. and really uh, kind of perform um, that kind of function that's so important in a democracy? Um, and I at the time thought, well, you know, it's hard to see the the exact kind of political outcome of impeachment when it's going to just die in the Senate. Mm-hmm. So maybe what you could do is hold a series of these hearings and uh, really begin to have a conversation with America about the way this president behaves. Um, but now it feels like even that route is also very hard, given the fact that you now have to go through all of these additional mm-hmm. hoops right, mm-hmm. to even get mm-hmm. them to talk mm-hmm. to you. Well, but I think it's not surprising that the administration doesn't want to play into that yeah. scenario that you just sketched out, a conversation about... <laughs> It's you know, not in their favor. The help that Trump yeah. received on the campaign trail, and the, you know, the fact that some of his campaign advisors were very receptive to the offers of help from a foreign power and foreign intelligence agents. I mean, we don't know to what extent Oleg Deripaska is a, a foreign intelligence agent, uh, but or Konstantin Klimnik, mm-hmm. Klimnik is, but yeah. they may be. I mean, we don't really have insight, and it's probably classified as to whether these guys are. In, you know, connected with foreign intelligence uh, uh, agencies. So, yeah, they don't really want to get into – they don't want to have this conversation with America. So they're going to throw up legal hurdles and obstacles. And so – and then, you know, those will, will be processed by the courts. And so Mitch McConnell was asked about this on Tuesday uh, when it was clear that uh, uh, the bar wasn't going to show up before the House committee. He was asked, well, what do you think about the fact that, you know, administration officials don't want to show up, don't want to comply with 
house oversight requests or don't, might not want to uh, comply with subpoenas. And so, you know, you know, he has an interest as, you know, as a longtime member of the Appropriations Committee, as a longtime member of the Senate. I mean, he, you know, he's going, he spans Democratic and Republican administrations. He had an interest in saying, well, the administration should comply with subpoena requests. Instead, he said, you know, instead he took a safer route. He said, well, this is going to be, I assume the courts will figure this out. And I think the courts mm-hmm. will figure it out. And that's why I think Barr will show up before the House committee, because it's hard for me to imagine that, it's, that a court would say, no, the House doesn't have, you know, the House paid for this report. Shouldn't they, shouldn't the members of the House committee listen to the administration's representative explain what's in the report and why it was handled yeah. the way it was? Well, it sounds like it's just going to happen later rather than sooner. Uh, what about Bob Mueller? Uh, there's certainly uh, a lot of enthusiasm to bring him in uh, to testify before Congress. Uh, what does the process look like for that? And can the Justice Department, I'm assuming, stop him from coming in? He is an employee of the Justice Department, technically. Works so he, under Bob Barr. So, so yeah. yes, he, you know, they could stop that request, although Barr was asked about this on whenever he testified, I guess it was Wednesday, and he said uh, he wouldn't have a problem with Mueller testifying. So huh. Barr's given the green light for Mueller to testify. Now, on the Senate side, Lindsey Graham, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, says that he is not going to call Mueller to testify. He said, and we're done, Lindsey Graham. He said, <laughs> we're done. And so he, <laughs> he modified that a little bit afterwards. So and then on the House side, they're going to call Mueller to testify, but maybe gets caught up into in, in you know procedural wickets, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe there is some, well, you know, we don't like the way you're setting up this hearing or, you know, Stephen Cohen better not bring fried chicken because if he no. does, Bob Mueller's allergic to fried chicken. We can't subject <laughs> him to that. I mean, you know, they make him up with some last minute excuses. That'd be sad to but, be allergic <laughs> to fried chicken. I well, mean, I think Peter started crying when you said that. I like, can't. <laughs> could you say such a thing? You know, on that point, though, uh, there, there's a really, really great uh, This American Life episode. I, I've talked about this before. It's a couple weeks old now. Uh, and they they talk all about it. it was whenever Matthew Whitaker, the acting attorney general at the time, was going to testify, uh, and the back and forth and the battle to get him there, the promises that Nadler had to make, the um, right. you, all, all of this stuff, and it's stuff that I, I think you know, a- Alex, you guys kind of live this when you cover it, but a lot of people don't necessarily get into those weeds. Uh, when they follow news stories. And it's really fascinating because it is a total power struggle to figure out where you can get that footing uh, and and where you have that power. And that is, I mean, it's a lot of it is just sort of, um, uh, you know, like traditional ways that the government works, but it also shows you how the Trump administration is creating new ways to get around those uh, traditional ways that the government works. Well, let's ask maybe is that is there something novel in the way this administration has dealt with Congress? Um, haven't past administrations uh, when they've come under uh, oversight requests from a Congress or, or a House controlled by the opposite party? Uh, also used delay tactics and also tried to slow slow walk things. We, of course, all remember when Eric Holder, uh, President Obama's attorney general, was held in contempt. Is this, you've been covering this for, for a while, is Trump taking this to new lengths or is he following a 
um, kind of a channel that other administrations, that other presidents have have dug up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a it's a constant battle. There's a constant power struggle. This is something that McConnell talked about on Tuesday too. I mean, this isn't new historically. There, there is always been a struggle for power between the executive branch and, and the uh, legislative branch, and there are often subpoenas, and there are often fights over executive privilege and what is available and who should testify. But usually usually people show up. I mean, they may not- <laughs> It's like step one, they show may not, up. They may yeah. not you know, uh, give you the documents they want, and they may, you know, they can assert- they can assert privilege over anything discussed in the White House, you know, counsel's office. They can assert privilege over any direct conversation with the president. I mean, you know, Don McGahn could show up and say, sorry, I can't, you know, I cannot testify to my conversations with the president, which is why I think it's pretty extraordinary that he told, that he recounted to Bob Mueller that conversation with Trump where Trump said, you know, I want you to talk to Rob Rosenstein and remove Mueller for conflicts. I mean, the fact that McGahn, the White House counsel, divulged that conversation with his client, that's extraordinary. I mean, that's amazing that that wasn't covered by privilege. So why do you think that was? Probably an oversight by somebody. The president. I don't know. I mean, yeah. it, it's pretty bad, bad legal work. I mean, you know, how did I mean, you know, I'm not I haven't followed the you know, president's legal team that closely. But how does how do president's lawyer how do the president's lawyers let Don McGahn testify to the special counsel without invoking, you know, executive privilege. Mm-hmm. You know, this person does not deserve a six hundred or a thousand dollar, you know, billing rate. Give yeah. me a break. I mean, yeah. that's a that's a that's a big, that's a huge strategic mistake. And and that's and that's becoming the crux of the obstruction case now. I mean, that is the that he told him to to fire Mueller and then had him. Well, write he didn't a, tell him. That was something that Barr was asked about. And he said he did not tell him to fire Mueller. He asked him to remove him for conflict of interest. So it's not the same thing. I see. Okay. He's drawing a very fine legal distinction there, but he thinks that that actually is what the obstruction case hinges on. Uh Uh-huh. Okay? Uh So it's Is that technicality? Well, if you tell, you know, Barr was very specific in his testimony before the Senate committee. He said, look, the president didn't tell McGahn to fire him. In layman's terms, yeah, he did, but that's, but, but Barr was like drawing a fine legal distinction. Well, he, and as we know, the president speaks in very technical legalese, <laughs> so this is a well, good, it's a good context. He, he said, he said that uh, you know, he noted that what the president told McCann precisely was, talk to Rod Rosenstein, have Mueller removed because he's conflicted, and so he felt that uh, that he kind of described it that Trump was offering his legal opinion that Mueller was too conflicted to serve as attorney general. I'm sorry, too conflicted to serve as special counsel, and that he should take it to the you know, acting attorney general to see if that was true and then remove and, him if it was. And, I mean, what's, that's, and what's the claim of the conflict? He's, I, I, is it because of that country club situation? No, that he, no the conflict not, is, the you know, the 13 club. angry Democrats on his investigative panel. The oh. fact that, you know, they either voted for Hillary Clinton or the registered Democrats or they gave money to Hillary Clinton. That's the conflict. I see. That's the conflict. All right. So it wasn't that, you know, Trump wasn't obstructing justice. He was trying to deal with a conflict of interest. Oh, I see. Well, I see. That's what they're, uh, that's what they're going with. Well, so. you know, you talk about the sloppy legal work, yeah. which I take your point, but it feels like we're also in an environment, as we were saying before we came to you, that people are really just reading this report through 
uh, partisan lenses, right? That if you agree with the president, the report is somehow both a witch hunt, but also exonerates him at the same time. And if you disagree with with this president, then uh, you want to dig into the report and listen to it on audiobook. Mm -hmm. But the question is, how much political ground are Democrats gaining by sucking up so much oxygen, talking about this issue, and of course then by definition, spending less time laying out uh, an agenda uh, that they hope to, to convince the American people of as we head into 2020. In other words, is there a political benefit, do you think, in pursuing uh, this very treacherous, bumpy, uh, and curvy road. Um, you know, I was watching, I don't usually watch Noam Chomsky, but I just saw him on YouTube the, <laughs> yes. the other day, and uh, he was making the case that... Uh, <laughs> Noam Chomsky quote, who would have thought? Please well, he continue. Was, he, was making, he was making the case that actually this is helping Trump's re-election. That yeah. by focusing on, by putting all your eggs in the basket, and uh, in the Mueller basket, and it and it not yielding anything by putting you know by building up so much anticipation for this report by you know whether on you know CNN or MSNBC whether it's Adam Schiff or Eric Swalwell kind of you know spinning this expectation that there were there's going to be a smoking gun the in this report the bar was set so high right and it turns out to be a colossal disappointment you know i think that i think that hurt democrats a lot because there was this i think there was this expectation this almost this promise that when the Mueller report comes out we're really going to see the depths of the corruption of this administration. Well, actually, no, we didn't. And then he's like, well, maybe there's something in the redacted portions. Well, I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not sure you want to hold up that much hope either because, mm -hmm. you know, reading the report, yes, there are things redacted and there's some details you don't know, but you don't get the sense, though. And you have to kind of guess at what's in the redacted portions, but it doesn't seem like anything there is, is going to be enough to, you know, fundamentally alter the narrative. So, you know, the thing is the Democrats have put in so much – as Chomsky pointed out, you know, there's so much they put out, they're putting all their attention on this. It's not yielding anything, and they're not talking about the things that actually really move votes. And and he's one person saying that, but there are other per, there are the Democrats who say the same thing. That look, what moves voters are things like health care and you know Social Security, the safety of Social Security, or maybe the debt, or maybe defense, or maybe social programs. Or, I mean, the, and the, gun policy now. Let's throw gun that policy. into this. There's a good one. There are many of them. You know, the yeah. climate change, the environment. I mean, there are a lot of things that actually move voters. This doesn't really move voters because there's nothing really there in a meaningful way to the average voter, yeah. I don't think. I mean, like, you know, yeah, there was, you know, there was some, ah, you know, there's there's some gross stuff in there. As, you know, Mitt Romney said, he was, he was sickened and appalled. And, you know, the behavior falls, you know, far short of what you would hope, you know, people at the higher le highest level governments, you know, would be doing. But, you know, I challenge you in a 15, you know, 15, uh, you know, in, you know, 25 words or less, you know, what's the, you know, what is the most damning revelation of the Mueller report? It's hard to, mm -hmm. what is it? 25 words or less. What's the worst thing in the Mueller report? I, for me, when I, and I haven't read the report, I've, I've obviously read reporting on it. To me, the thing that really shocked me, and this isn't going to be a specific thing, but kind of a, a general sense, <clears throat> was <clears throat> the lengths to which yeah. this president went to lie to the American people, to get other people to lie on his behalf, uh -huh. and just the general sense of doing whatever is necessary to protect himself, to shield himself, to benefit, benefit himself politically, 
to the disregard of what's good for the country, what's good for the American people. It was hard for me to imagine, even though I had a sense of this, that this is a man who was using his powerful office to, uh, you know, to to basically uh, enrich and to help himself in a way that really truly shocked me. Well, where's that? How did he enrich himself in the report? That's nowhere in the report that he enriched himself. Well, just in in the yeah. sense that the goal the goal was always yeah. to do whatever was necessary for him to win to strengthen himself politically. Um, and that that was the decision making process every step of the way. I mean, you could also look at the 10, uh, 10, 10 uh, I guess, examples of obstruction that Mueller laid out. Uh, I think those were also surprising. But look, I, I agree. I agree with your assessment that when I uh, when the report first came out and it was clear there was no single smoking gun emanating lots of smoke that I thought that this is going to yeah. be a problem for uh, for Democrats and progressives who, as you point out, hung their hat on it. I think if, if the Mueller report had found, you know, Trump promised to ease sanctions on, you know, Vladimir Putin and Russia, you know, a despotic mm -hmm. regime with a terrible human rights record and is also an enemy of the United States in exchange for campaign help to win the election, that would have been a different story. But that's not what Mueller found. And maybe, maybe that is there. You know, maybe that actually happened. But Mueller didn't find it, and you know he was hampered by all sorts of things. He wasn't able to get key Russian witnesses to, you know, to to testify. Uh, the, you know, there were records that were destroyed. There were communications that were destroyed. I yeah. mean, you know, he's he's. I think people thought he was super Superman. He, I mean, he's only human, and right. he could only find out what he could find out. Yeah. And, and you know, maybe had for him to really have you know gotten the goods on Trump, he would have needed probably Stone and Manafort to cooperate, and they didn't. Rick Gates did, but he only knew so much. He was a little bit of a peripheral player, and so you know, one of the conversations I think that came up during the you know the bar hearing as well. This you know that one of the president's aides, you know, he, you know Barr was I think pressed. Well, one of the president's aides told you know Stone and Manafort they would be taken care of if they didn't cooperate. You know, is that obstruction of justice? Barr said no. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, yeah. That, so maybe that's you know maybe I mean, maybe that's where you focus on you know. Manafort and and you know and Stone, they know what really happened, and they didn't and they didn't say anything because the president sent a message you know through an aide through a former aide, you know that they yeah. would, that they would be taken care of. So is that the, you know, is that the crux of the wrongdoing? I think then it becomes you know it's just it's just a little bit conspiratorial. Like well, what we don't know exactly what happened. We can, you know, postulate all sorts of things, and that's why I think people, as you said, read what they want to. Mm -hmm into this report. Well, let me ask you quickly, is there a sense uh, when you talk to, you know, committee aides and staff and, and other Democrats who are thinking through what the strategy should be, do they have a sense that this may be somewhat counterproductive? Are, are they, are the, the notion that Chomsky laid out uh, that this may help reelect Donald Trump because it avoids uh, focusing on other issues. Is that coming coming through? Are folks kind of waking up to to that as a potential reality? I don't, you know, <clears throat> um, I, you know, I think it's hard, I think it's hard for them to do so because at this point there's so much media interest, in, you know, in this story and politicians are, you know, they're so driven by the media. Yes. You know, because that's that's their we've noticed yeah. that's the way they interact with the American public. Yeah. So, you know, if the media is always asking about something, they can kind of fall into this, you know, 
I, I think, you know, mistake of thinking, well, that's what people really want to know about, but eh, it's not really the same thing. Like, yeah. it's weird. It's like, this is what may, you know, drive media ratings. So people, you know, people want to tune into your show to listen about the Mueller report. They don't want to tune into your show about to listen to like Trump's infrastructure plan. <laughs> that Democrats are apparently but, helping him with. But yeah. weirdly, though, when it comes to, you know, when it comes to voting, they vote on things like they vote on bread and butter issues. So yeah. it's kind of like that's one of the weird contradictions of American democracy. So, you know, I think. But look, there are people who think that, look, we need to focus on health care. The issue Trump's, you know, Trump's record of not accomplishing anything. That's a better issue for us in 2020 mm-hmm. than, this, than this other stuff. All right. Alexander Bolton. He's a reporter for The Hill on Twitter at Alexander Bolton. I'm Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press. We're going to take a break and we'll be back right after this. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. The Bill Press Show, this Friday, May 3rd, 2019. I'm Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press as we move into hour two of reviewing the week that was. And every week in the Trump administration is a, on Fridays, you got to just take a big sigh just let it all out and just hope you can ease into the weekend. But of course you can't because there's nothing easy, nothing easy at all uh, about uh, this president. Christy Goldfuss is a former colleague of mine at the Center for American Progress. She's the senior vice president for energy and environment policy. We're going to talk to her in just a moment about the Climate Action Now Act. But first... This is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay, Igor, I have to ask your opinion on something. Yes. These little electric scooters that you see all over the place? Yes, thumbs in every city. In every city. Uh, medium. Medium. Okay. Medium. Have you, have, have I've you done it. I've done it. It's. I find it too dangerous for me, for me. Okay. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because they have a very serious problem with this in Austin, Texas. Because you mentioned they are in every city. We have them here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Austin, Texas also has them. Well, they have reported that in three months, nearly 200 people were injured in scooter crashes. It's very dangerous. It is very dangerous. And I have such bad, like, you know, sense of what's happening around me that I will, without question, be in an accident. Well, they're saying that not only are people injuring themselves, but they're hitting people on the sidewalk. You're running into people. Christy, were you hit? No, I just have almost been hit several times. Have you ridden one, Christy? (laughs) 
Have no, but I hear people treat them like bikes. They hit a pothole and then they fall into traps. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very, very dangerous. It's very dangerous because the wheels are small, and right. so when you hit, it's not. They don't bounce. They don't bounce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're they're very dangerous. Uh, but like I said, two hundred different cases in three months of injuries from people riding these things. Uh, look, if you're gonna ride them. Just be careful for crying out loud. You're right. I, th- I think a lot of people look at them as bikes, you know, and, no. and they're, they're much more dangerous than bikes. And they do it without a helmet. Right. So you can just go flying down the road. Sure. And no protective gear, no knee pads. Or... Multiple people on a scooter. That's the other one. I oh, see. yeah. Oh, I haven't seen that yeah. yet, but that sounds very dangerous. Don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, you know, one thing that other countries definitely get right is how they package their cigarettes. Oh. Uh, they. Okay. And by, what I mean by that is they put very graphic <laughs> warnings yes. on there saying this is what happens if you smoke cigarettes very uh, disturbing images of let's say oral cancer things like that to say like if you smoke cigarettes this is what you're risking well in canada they figured that that is not enough they are actually insisting uh, and it's now going to be a new rule that kicks in later on this year all cigarette packages will be packaged the same plain drab brown Packaging. There can't be anything flashy or anything cool oh. about it. It just has to basically just look like a brown paper bag uh, on the cigarette packaging. There will be one thing that they will still be allowed to show. Uh, in fact, they're going to show more of them. Graphic health warnings about the dangers of smoking. They're going to continue to show the horrible things that you are risking. I'm sorry if anybody is a smoker who's listening. or No, no. I mean, I don't understand smokers. why people still smoke in 2019. I honestly don't. I pass them on the street all the time. I quit smoking in 2008. Best decision I ever made. Oh, I understand and, why people smoke. <laughs> but it, Do you? But why? What's your understanding? It's a stressful time, man. It's a pretty stressful. But you'd be a lot more stressful. It's it's about to get a lot more stressful once you have health problems. As a result, that's the that's the real stress you want to avoid. It's roulette for a lot of people. You just you're sort of gambling with it. But my point here is, uh, if you're thinking about entering smoking, it's about to get a lot harder because (laughs) the 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 marketing is terrible. That you're going to be looking at more and more of the damage that's done by it whenever you buy the cigarettes at the store. This is the Bill Press Show. That's right, the Bill Press Show, Friday, May 3rd. How are we already in May? Only almost halfway through the year. It's oh, amazing. Totally amazing. 19. I'm Igor Volsky, filling in for Bill Press. By the way, I've written a book. It's called Guns Down How to Defeat the NRA, Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. You know, you can buy it now. Why put it off? GunsDownBook.com. I'm also on a book tour. Uh, We're hitting 20 cities all across the country to talk to Americans about what they can do to build a future with fewer guns. Go to GunsDownTour.com, GunsDownTour.com for all of the dates. We're going to be in Delaware on Saturday, Princeton on Sunday, uh, New York on Tuesday, I believe. Uh, Everywhere you want to (laughs) be, we will be there as well. 
gunsdowntour.com. But joining me now is Christy Goldfest. She's the Senior Vice President for Energy and Environment Policy at the Center for American Progress, where we used to work together. It's so wonderful to see you. Hi, friends. So good to Thank see you, you so much too. I know you're going to ask me questions, yeah. but I would love to hear your thoughts on the recent NRA scandal at some point. Oh, really, well, listen, I, I have know. I have all of the thoughts. <laughs> all, I was actually at the NRA convention this past weekend. Oh. And we talked about this right at the top of the show. I don't know if you've been to one before. No. The thing that's truly shocking, and for me, though, at the same time familiar, having been born in the former Soviet Union, is the convention in Indianapolis had huge posters of mm. the faces of NRA leaders. And so entire bridges were wrapped in Wayne LaPierre's face or wow. Dana Lash's face or Chris Cox's face or Oliver North's face. And it was all very strange uh, because I don't know of any other conventions here in America mm -hmm. who literally you know, hang the face of their leader on a building right. as if you're supposed to bow down to them. Very um, dear leader. Very dear leader and and very scary. Any frankly. difference in feeling around the convention with all of this? There rest? wasn't a difference in the feeling. And we talked to a bunch of the folks who were coming in and out. They wouldn't give us, shockingly, a press pass. I was right. working with Now This. <laughs> they did not give us a press pass. How is to that come possible? I, we were surprised, as surprised as you are. The questions we asked in terms of the scandal that the NRA was facing, nobody was concerned. Mm -hmm. They either told us, oh, this is some just family interfighting or, oh, it's fake news. So um, we have so much money. What's a couple million dollars between people? You know, <laughs> right. Although, you know, the board is concerned. They had an emergency meeting. Right. And of course, all of this stems from the investigation that the New York AG has begun into their nonprofit status. They're a C4. Uh, and of course, if they lose that status in New York, the question is, can they move to another state? What do they do then? Mm. Um, and so they're kind of in uncharted territory in figuring out uh, what to do next. So the NRA not thriving under Trump. Uh, and neither is our environment, by the way. Exactly. Perfect transition, <laughs> Igor. Although yesterday was really it was very exciting to see the House actually take action for the first time in a decade. Uh, they passed H.R. 9, which is the Climate Action Now bill, and there was unanimous support, full Democratic support, and we even picked up three, three Republicans, Republicans, which was was a pleasant surprise. So this bill would seek to block the Trump administration from exiting the Obama-era Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, how would this work, especially because it, it is dead on arrival, I'm assuming, in the Republican-controlled Senate? Yes, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell was very clear yesterday that he doesn't have any plans to no interest fill up in the Senate. So um, the main goal of this, though, was to really show that there is a unifying message around climate change. There's a lot of coverage and the media loves to point out the differences with the, you know, grand immersion of the Green New Deal, uh, pitting the left against the left. And what we really saw yesterday is that uh, Democrats are completely united in taking climate action. 
This is a evolving and growing crisis that even scientists have been surprised at how quickly climate change uh, is impacting us now and how it has really um, expedited in its, in its impacts. So what we saw yesterday was everyone saying, we are united in action. We are going to come together and put forward many different plans and have a robust debate about how we're going to address this crisis. But the president has announced that he's exiting the deal, that yes. America is exiting the deal. Where does that stand now? Uh, when it was all established, and I think this was very much done deliberatively and on purpose, uh, we will not officially leave the agreement till the day after the 2020 election. So uh, what a it is a, a bureaucratic process that takes many, many steps. But uh, that is the time frame. If uh, the Trump administration hits all of their marks, we would officially leave the agreement the day after the election. However, it's very easy to get back in. And given that the United States is currently the only country that's not a party to the agreement, uh, if things were to change, uh, in the 2020 election, we could be back in within a couple of months. And remind us and, and our listeners about uh, the guts of this agreement, why it's so important. The Paris Agreement brought everyone around the world together in a non-binding fashion to put forward goals and say, this is what my country, our country can do to contribute to combating climate change. So our contribution, our nationally determined contribution is the term NDC, was that we were going to reduce our carbon pollution by 26 to 28 percent below 2005 levels. And there's lots of different ways that we can do that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our electricity sector is the uh, one of the largest portions of carbon pollution. But then in the past year or so, we've seen transportation sector eclipse the electricity sector. Uh, so lots of different steps that we can take in order to reach those goals. But then the purpose of the agreement was to then bring everyone together around the globe to then say what they're going to do next. And that's what's coming up in uh, 2025. All the countries will then say, OK, they'll report on over the next couple of years their progress towards the goals that they identified, and then start the work of saying, okay, what can we do next? Because obviously this is a problem that we all have to address together. It doesn't work if one country just does it by themselves. So has the federal government under Trump moved in the direction of meeting that goal? <laughs> uh, I'm assuming that on, the answer Igor. is no. Uh, but then uh, states across the country have been taking action That's right. on the climate issue like they have on guns as well. Yeah. Uh, so talk about that. And, uh, in, in, you know, obviously, if we were to have uh, a different party in the White House in 2020, that individual would put a pause on exiting the agreement and I, I'm assuming come back into the agreement. And then what would they have to do to ensure that we meet uh, the benchmarks that we set out? Right. It really has been extraordinary to see what mayors and governors have done over the last two years. It started out as uh, really just a hope that all of these uh, local leaders would join the fight and say that they would do their part. The way our electricity system is set up, they actually, especially governors, have a lot of control over the decisions about how our our uh, electricity is used. So uh, it was extraordinary that so many, we now have 25 bipartisan uh, governors that are a part of the U.S. Climate Alliance. This was mm. started by 
uh, Governor Jerry Brown in California, former governor and uh, Governor Inslee in Washington. Now it's grown uh, to 25, including several Republicans. And then we have more than 100 mayors across this country that have made commitments to 100 percent clean electricity. And we're seeing the governors do that as well. So really, really extraordinary momentum at the local level to take this action. Unfortunately, every bit of analysis we have is that governors, states, cities can't do this on their own. We are ultimately going to need federal action. And given the rate at which climate change is happening, we're going to need even greater ambition than I think we would have expected during the Obama administration. Oh, wow. So so uh, things are worse than we had thought when this agreement was coming together. Well, and we had decoupled economic growth uh, during the Obama administration, decoupled economic growth and emissions reductions. And we had seen that we were still growing the economy while we brought down our overall carbon pollution, yeah. which was an extraordinary pivot, I think, in the overall climate change debate. What's happened over the last year, uh, just given the explosion of natural gas and other issues, we now see our emissions back on the rise. Mm. And of course, because the Trump administration has so aggressively attacked all the measures and all the different uh, pieces we had put in place, whether it was the clean power plan, they're now attacking the uh, fuel economy standards, which were the single most successful piece of action that we had from the Obama administration trying to roll that back. It is it is just kind of staggering if all of these rollbacks stay in place, what a bad position we'll be in terms of hitting any of those goals. Mm. So we will certainly have to make sure that we get back on track. And then the challenge of 2021 and beyond, and it's a challenge both to the next administration, but also to the next Congress, which is why yesterday was so historic in my mind. What are we going to do? What are the actual policies that are going to be able to get us to where we need to go in mid-century, which is the scientists tell us we really have to stop our carbon pollution by that time? I want to ask you about how this issue is playing out in the 2020 presidential election, and it's it's taking on uh, a kind of a brighter and brighter Mm -hmm. uh, spotlight as candidates crisscross the country. Uh, but um, I had some other question that I now as I was setting it up for actually forgot what it is. So. Well, I have lots to say on what, <laughs> what you set up. So I'm just going to jump in well, right on that. Here okay, it is. Here right, it, is. Good, it good. came back. It came back. I guess with us now going backwards mm-hmm. under Trump, uh, do you have a level? How? Let me ask this. How optimistic are you? That when a new administration comes in 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 2020, that they're able to correct course in a way that will still keep us on track, because I don't, as you can imagine, follow a lot of climate news because (laughs) all I do is talk about this. Um, But my sense is when I do pay attention is just. Every report is things are are worse than we thought. We're going to need to do this faster. So are we at a place today where you feel like we could still course correct this? We have to. I mean, there's we will have to do whatever we possibly can. And I have zero doubt that if we have a change in party in 2020 and there's actually a new president that we will course correct in every way and, humanly and possible. And do we feel like we know how to do that, that we know how to solve this yes. problem? Yes, we know how to solve this problem. We have luckily been working on it from decades. We are not in the same place that we were 10 years ago when mm-hmm. Waxman Markey did pass yes. the House. We have learned a ton 
Unfortunately, what we've learned through that process is that there is no silver bullet. There is no one bill. There's no set of regulations, mm-hmm. one set of regulations that is going to solve this problem. Really a combination of it policies. It has to be a whole combination of policies. And you will have to have a commitment from the next president to act on day one, to act boldly, and then to use every single tool in the toolbox, including working with Congress to move legislation so that we can do what we need to do to get us on track. There are I could get into the very weedsy, wonky details of how we do that in each sector of the economy. But really what we need to hear and what we are hearing from these presidential candidates is that they are going to work from day one. What's changed also is the certainly the Democratic electorate, and now we're even seeing independents and some Republicans, are demanding to know what the solutions will be. For the first time ever, climate change has appeared in the Democratic primary as either tied with health care or even eclipsing health care as a number one priority. No, it's been wonderful to see how this issue, uh, how the party and Americans as a whole have really become so bullish on climate change in a way that they weren't no. uh, 10 years ago, you point out. Even in out, 2016. Even in 2016. What do you think has changed? How has this, how have we been able to, as a country, how have our leaders moved to such a bold place on this issue where many of them, and I think almost all of the presidential candidates are now embracing the Green New Deal uh, and talking about that, as you point out, as a real uh, priority for their administration? What happened over especially the last year is we had the confluence of scientists coming forward with real statements and predictions. So you had the IPCC 1.5 report that really said, here's what we need to do by 2030. Here's what we need to do by 2050. We had Donald Trump, President Trump's own scientists, 13 federal scientists through the National Climate Assessment, come out with their predictions and talk about what's happening now. And then we had the wildfires in California. So as people were fleeing their homes and talking more and more about the intensity of that fire and how climate change fueled it to an even greater degree, right on the heels of those two national reports, international reports, and all of that coming together at once brought about an awareness that we're not, we are the generation. It's not just about what you hear and scientists say is going to happen. We're now hearing what scientists are saying is going to happen and seeing it. And the combination of those two things, I think, really woke people up to the fact that we can act and we have to act in combination with the fact that we've got this president who denies climate change, mocks climate change. And there is such a clear contrast between the path forward and what we're seeing from our leadership currently. Mm. And has public opinion kept track with that escalation as well? Yes. So what we're I mean, I think all of this that we're seeing in terms of the 2020 election is uh, tied very much to public opinion. And obviously, there are some generational divides uh, over who really the intensity around action and younger yep. voters. But then also it's 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 kind of strange. You have millennial younger voters below 40. And then there's an uptick over 65 where people get very concerned about the future for their children and grandchildren. Well, let me ask you about this divide, uh, particularly between kind of the younger lawmakers and the older lawmakers uh, and the divide around the Green New Deal, that there are some folks who are, you know, obviously uh, very much um, pushing that forward. Others calling for a different approach. Uh, Talk about that and, and where that stands in the politics around the idea of doing something so big and bold Mm -hmm. in a single piece of legislation. 
It was extraordinary to watch the Green New Deal burst onto the scene just after those reports, just after the California fires and then the election. Uh, we saw Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, the Sunrise Movement, and really a rise in activism about what are we going to do around our future. Out of that energy and uh, real demand for action came the Green New Deal resolution. And I always like to level set in these discussions. Yes. Uh, the resolution would change nothing. If it passed tomorrow, there would be zero change in your lives, zero change in requirements in the we agency. We just have a little pep in our step, Right, maybe. exactly. <laughs> it is a, a bold vision of where we need to go and what we need to do. And so I, I think it is um, been used by the right. Fox News talks about it more than any other entity to really kind of drive forward this idea that Democrats just have a socialist agenda. The truth of the matter is the Green New Deal just is about where we need to go. It's like a framework. It is a framework. And now we are going to move forward with uh, discussions around how we get there. Mm -hmm. What are the policies that set us on that track? What are the uh, actual um, changes that we need to see in our regulations that were, would put us in our track? So I, I think, um, in my mind, we would not have the social change and movement that we need without the Green New Deal. And it energizes it's given us, people, you're it's, saying. Yes, yeah. it's given us the platform and the opening to now have real robust debate that I don't think we would have had otherwise. So the idea is to uh, be able to pass a framework or a really long-term goal for where we want to be in 15, 20, 30, whatever it may be years, and then pass standalone bills that to that place. Is that right. right? I mean, to the point that we can't, there is no silver bullet. Yeah. And we will need to see changes in many different sectors of the economy. What H.R. 9 did yesterday, which is very obviously different than the Green New Deal, was show that Democrats can be unified, even bringing along uh, three Republicans here. But then we will have real robust debate. There have been more than 27 hearings uh, about climate change in the House. There's and you've more attended every all of them, day. I hear. <laughs> <laughs> People would put forward actual policies, clean electricity standard. People will put forward um, renewable electricity standards, all different kinds of ideas uh, and bills that would be binding and mm -hmm. actually change and reduce our, our uh, carbon emissions. So the Green New Deal, huge framework. H.R. Uh, 9 and Climate Action Now, first step to show that Democrats can be unified. This is not an uh, issue that divides us. And now is the beginning. This was the first step, the beginning of robust debate around climate solutions. Let's pretend in our ideal world that the Green New Deal has passed and so we now have this framework. Mm -hmm. What would you push lawmakers in Congress to do first in terms of what are you most excited about that will really have an impact and help us move in the right direction? Right. We've seen a model at the states that I think is pretty extraordinary and shows both the policy and the coalition that we need to act. So recently in Washington state, they passed a 100 percent clean electricity bill. And this bill, uh, despite the fact that the state tried a carbon tax three different times mm -hmm. in three different ways, they moved forward this bill that focused on where we need to go, what would their goal was, and then set out how they were going to do that. 
it included very strong language around equity and making sure that the benefits of this policy were shared by all communities and real language around looking at the historic pollution that has befallen certain communities because of industrialization and making sure that whatever money is raised from this uh, overall policy could be returned to those communities. Also had language uh, to make sure that the jobs and anybody who got the tax credits, the incentive was really towards uh, quality, high paying union jobs, which brought labor leaders along. Uh, And then, obviously, very strong goals that they're going to have 100 percent clean electricity. Similarly, in California, uh, they have very strong targets. So I think what we need to look at is binding targets and some ways that we get there that make sure we are ensuring high-quality jobs because to make this transition to clean electricity, we are going to put a lot of people to work. And we got to make sure that those are high-paying, quality jobs and that really where we bring together the the uh, racial and social injustice issues that this country has suffered from is how do we make sure that we're transitioning and really helping a lot of communities that have been disproportionately marginalized as a result of our industrialization and really from fossil fuel industries. So those bringing that together, which is the themes of that are all in the Green New Deal, is the path forward for us. Targets with a strong coalition with people who understand that they will benefit and be better off as a result of our So real policy. real models, real templates Correct. for lawmakers to follow. Wow, yes. that is, that's very good to hear, actually, that that exists. Yeah, it would <laughs> be a super big bummer to come in here and be like, yeah, we have no idea to do this. It's getting worse. We're going backwards and we have no clue how to change it. But we do. Uh, Let me ask you quickly uh, about how the issue is playing in the presidential election. It seems to be a top level issue uh, in 2019, which is so wonderful to hear, not where it was 10 years ago. Do you feel like it's really animating voters in a whole new way? Yes. Uh, Undoubtedly, yes. We already saw uh, Beto O'Rourke put out a really excellent plan this week uh, that did similarly what I was just talking about, focused on targets and where we need to go, and then had a lot of detail about a day one plan. I expect that we'll see um, Governor Inslee put something out today. Uh, that I'm sure will be incredibly ambitious because he is running on climate change. And he's been a real leader in this issue. Yes. And uh, I think all of that and also Elizabeth Warren has put out a plan uh, focused on public lands and decreasing, in fact, stopping all of our fossil fuel production on public lands. So we're seeing these uh, 21 different candidates (laughs) jockey for- Wait, is it 22? I thought it was 22 or 23. With Michael Bennett coming in, I thought it was 21. Well, whatever. 20 plus candidates. Candidates. I don't know. Let's I think Michael Bennett is 21. 21. I thought he was Okay, 21. I was I thought we were right. 23. Yeah. We, okay. we hadn't mentioned that yet today, but he did get into the race. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yes, For anyone that? who's keeping score. 22? Oh, uh, 22. H- Hannah Trudeau, who's going to be joining us in the next segment, she says it's 22. 22 oh, with boy. Michael Bennett. Yeah. yeah, Michael Bennett did not make the A block of our program today. I don't <laughs> no. know what happened. Don't Sorry. even have a single story. Oh, no, I do have a story about Michael Bennett here. Never mind. It's just buried. It's job. just buried <laughs> in this pile. It's not that big of a deal. But the first debate at the end of June is in Miami, 
and yes. there is absolutely no way you can go to Florida, Miami in particular, and not talk about climate change. So 2016, we had one question in all of the debates that were at, yes. was asked about climate change. One it's question. Like real flashback yes. there. Now what we're hearing is there's just absolutely no way that getting through, especially this first debate, but, you know, this they're going to be 10 people yep. plus on stage. So it's not like people are going to get into a deep, robust policy discussion. But as the field narrows, uh, there's just no way at this point, given the priority that voters are placing on this issue, that uh, the candidates won't talk about climate change. And the fact that we have solutions will make it so this is an opportunity for them to uh, differentiate on how much they embrace the the need to act and how quickly they will act. And I think it's also a, a great sign that it's this issue is no longer kind of a check the box issue. Right. I got to say something about that. I need my soundbite that candidates are thinking about this. They have plans of how to get there uh, and that they understand that this is something voters really care about. That's right. Christy Goldfist is the Senior Vice President for Energy and Environment Policy at the Center for American Progress, my former colleague. Thank you so much for coming in. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Bill Press Show. Igor Volsky filling in for Bill Press on this Friday, May 3rd, 2019. I'm Russian, by the way, in case you're wondering, discussing that with our next guest. Hannah Trudeau, uh, she used to be of the National Journal, where she covered the 2020 election, but she is soon joining the Daily Beast after her week-long staycation, which I congratulated her on because it is hard for us in this politics business particularly in these ever-changing-by-the-moment Let me just say yes. take this. A break. Uh, Hannah, yes. Hannah gets the Spirit Award because I thought she was still on the job when I asked her to join the show, ah. which is fine. We're, we're happy to have you. Uh, but you came in on, like, a day off. <laughs> that it, that we no, do... No, it's cool. I, I'm happy to be with you guys in my free time. Well, Peter <laughs> will send you the plaque in the mail. Yeah, you get so the provide him uh, with, uh, with, with the address for that. By the way, I wrote a book. It's called Guns Down. <laughs> How to Defeat okay. the NRA and Build a Safer Future with Fewer Guns. You can get it at gunsdownbook.com. I don't miss any opportunity, Peter, Nor to, should you. Uh, <laughs> to, to get into this. Uh, the book, by the way, lays out a bolder vision for reducing gun deaths in America, uh, just as the presidential candidates are thinking through exactly how to approach an issue that has become the defining concern of a of the younger generation of Americans. Um, but Hannah, let's talk about where the race stands today, because yesterday, I think, or Wednesday, uh, Michael Bennett, uh, Bennett single T, I yes. call him, uh, the senator from Colorado, the senior senator from Colorado now, uh, joined the fray, becoming the 22nd <laughs> candidate in the race. Yes. Um, uh, what is Michael Bennett bringing to the race that the others aren't uh, haven't already brought? Well, it's hard to know exactly yet what he's bringing. Um, you know, he he said kind of 
in a cheeky way, he was saying, you know, somebody has to be 22. So he kind of knows, you know, he's not the front runner at this point. So I think he's having a little fun with that. Um, I just turned 22. So that oh, is yeah, a quite same a here, so same did here. I. So did I. It's so funny. <laughs> so did Taylor Swift. Uh, um, but she probably really did. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I mean, he's he's the second the second person from California from uh, Colorado running. So, um, you know, he doesn't even have the state alone to distinguish himself from the pack, which is which is odd he doesn't have I think he's the seventh senator at this point um so there's a lot of similarities you know with his his running his entering um I'm not sure exactly how he's going to differentiate himself quite yet but um he doesn't have much time to make the debate stage which is what everybody is kind of angling for Mm -hmm. and those who are getting in later are gonna have to play catch up a little bit with those you know small donors and um, getting all of the you know state by state requirements, and he had a recent cancer scare, mm-hmm. uh, which delayed the launch of his campaign. I think some folks were surprised that he ended up uh, getting in, though you know they caught it early, and he seems to be fine, and, and that's good. Yeah, uh, and I think frankly, you know, I mean, I don't in detail know the medical histories of the other candidates, but mm-hmm. living through a worrying diagnosis, mm-hmm. uh, I think informs. Uh, particularly health policies sure. uh, and other pieces. And so it's not that he doesn't have real world experiences to to bring to mm-hmm. the campaign. Mm-hmm. I think the surprise is uh, there are already so many people yeah. right, in, in the race. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the front runner mm-hmm. uh, who it appears uh, is Joe Biden, of course, the former <laughs> vice president. Yes. Um, and the decision by Bernie Sanders uh, the number two yep. uh, in, if you look at national polls, to take Biden on yeah. uh, very aggressively this early on in the primary. What is the strategy behind that? Well, I mean, I think he has nothing to lose by taking Biden on early because I think so- he said something along the lines of, well, this is a this is a primary. This is what you're supposed to do. And I, I, I would have to kind of agree with him on that. I mean, I think we're seeing up until now we've seen sort of I call it informally like the pleasantries primary where mm. everybody is kind of not attacking each other. And they're all saying, you know, we're Democrats. We're, we're going to go nice. You know, we're not going to do what the Republicans did when they were running against Trump. Um, and so that's kind of been like the shadow primary and building up to the the official launch dates of all of these candidates. But um, with, with Sanders doing this, I think, you know, he's kind of a different candidate anyways. So I think he might do a little bit of a different strategy than some of these other senators who are tiptoeing around attacking people. No one, it hasn't been very, no one has really been attacking each other no, so far. In the no, no. Very, oh, very nice. It's very nice. And like, yeah, and, 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 you know, I think he's kind of saying, you know, look, there's significant differences. We may be two older white men in our 70s, but there's, you know, significant policy differences between us. And, and I think he wants to highlight that early because they are both sort of, um, Biden and Bernie working towards that like white working class vote that Trump won over largely. Mm-hmm. And so I think the earlier he can do that, the better, I think, is the thinking behind it. Well, and let's talk about those differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, the argument against Joe Biden mm-hmm. that uh, the Justice Democrats make, mm-hmm. that Bernie Sanders is going to be making, is that he has a long career, mm-hmm. uh, that he has throughout that career acted as a centrist Mm -hmm. and as a moderate Mm -hmm. and that the party in 2019 is just in a different place. Yes. And so his record, they would argue, and Mm -hmm. maybe you could tick off some of the issues Mm -hmm. that that are the highlights of this argument. His record doesn't reflect where most primary voters are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Joe Biden argues, and uh, this is your piece, the return to normalcy, Mm. uh, that 
what he's bringing to the country isn't so much the details of specific policies, but he's kind of rewinding right. the clock back to where we were before Trump. So dig into some of the arguments against Biden and what the Biden campaign yeah. is doing to counter them. Yeah, some of the arguments, I mean, like I agree with everything you just said. I think it's the, the arguments against him um largely viewed among the progressive class are that he is more of that centrist dem. He's not, you know, all in on Medicare for all. He's not all in on the Green New Deal, you know, free college tuition. These are some of the main policy. Um, NAFTA, obviously, is a big thing with him with with trade. Um, these are some of the policy issues that are, are really firing up the the left leaning Democratic base, which, like you alluded to, has moved in that the party's moved in that direction. And so I think, you know, I think wisely Biden is sort of has staked out that centrist lane. Now, we don't know, obviously, which way it's going to go, but he is kind of occupying that alone right now. For the most part, there's obviously Senator Amy Klobuchar, who's kind of making a move for that, but she's much lower in the polls. And he's the biggest name who is um, in that centrist moderate lane. So, um, you know, I think obviously the progressives who are activists and and progressives within the Democratic sort of party um are using that against him. But I think he's kind of staking his his ground where he is and he's not going to waver too much, I don't think. I mean, he's kind of also saying right now, like, let's talk about policies later. You know, he said the other day, like, I'm enjoying my ice cream when he was kind of caught off guard, asked a, a policy question and said something like, oh, I'm having some ice cream. I want to just enjoy this right now. So he's kind of like toying with, um, you know, with people a little bit and saying, you know, we'll get to all of that later, but not not delving too deep into the issues. And I think that's a stark contrast from Bernie Sanders or even some of the other um, more up and coming people that are sort of digging into policy. How is Biden presenting himself? I think a lot of people were surprised uh, that he there was such a focus on Charlottesville uh, mm, as yeah, he launched, yeah. which, of course, brought out Trump's attacks yeah, against him. Yeah. What is their strategy for getting through the landmine of a primary where the base is very progressive and there yeah. are a lot of very progressive candidates who would also be historic. Uh, yeah, candidates. definitely. And I yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest hurdles for him and I think his campaign knows that, but basically um I, the the video of Charlottesville that his campaign launch video surprised me. I think it had su surprised a lot of people because it was the first time that we had seen a candidate announce um, their bid with a direct attack on Trump. And, you know, again, it's kind of like we don't want to focus on Trump. Let's focus on our ideas and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And that's what is working or, or, you know, that's the strategy for a lot of these newer candidates. But for him, it was like full on Trump. You know, let's just go all all in after him. And then um, the Charlottesville attack, obviously, it was something that resonated with a lot of people in terms of emotion. Um, but it was also a little bit odd in the sense of, you know, everybody knows Joe Biden wants to run for president and has run twice before. So it was kind of like, how did you, you know, he kind of said, well, after this, I realized that I really had to run. And it's like, well, we knew that you had, to, you know, you wanted to run all along. So, I, you know, I think it was some people sort of raised concerns like, why was it this event that that made you that finally flipped, you know, mm -hmm. your, the switch in your mind to run for president when you've seen everything else that's happened in the Trump mm -hmm. administration and, and, you know, having that previous sort of um, desire to run in the past. So it was kind of a, a little bit of a weird moment there. But, um, yeah, I think his his strategy is hitting Trump right out of the gate. I've said this a couple of times. I, I think that the Democratic primary really comes down to two camps because I think there are two camps in the Democratic uh, Party right now. Those who understand that we are in not normal times mm -hmm. and it's going to require a not normal candidate to yeah. defeat another not normal candidate like Donald Trump and people who just want to feel normal yeah. again. 
And I get both of them, uh, truly, right? But, you know, I think a lot of Democrats look at the eight years of Barack Obama. Uh, there was virtually no scandal. Uh, Except for that suit. Uh, oh, suit, yeah, God. of course. Uh, there was virtually no <laughs> scandal. The economy was doing very well for uh, a large group of Americans, not for all of the country, of course. Uh, and people just want to feel that way again. Yeah. People don't want to like have a president that exists in their head twenty four seven, but then there's also a you know like the Bernie Sanders, the Elizabeth Warren, even mm-hmm. the Andrew Yang, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, <laughs> Marion Williamson. Like then it's just like politics have changed, <laughs> right? And I don't know that we're going to be able to go back to the like let's say the Barack Obama uh, presidency. But there are a lot of people who are wistful about it and mm-hmm. Joe Biden is a symbol of that and yeah. getting back yeah. to that. Never mind all of the stuff that he did before he was vice president for uh, Barack Obama, which I think a lot of progressives would cringe at if they really were paying attention to it. They just know that he was the cool vice president when the cool guy was president and everybody felt good. Yeah. And if you look at poll numbers, the number of people who feel the way Peter described is significant. He's the front runner. He raised the most money out of the gate. Yes. Um, So he has a really compelling case to make that. And I guess the argument he's making me, correct me if I'm wrong, is we need me, Joe Biden, to bridge yes. uh, this era of moving from Trump to kind of doing a control alt delete on our yeah. politics. Yeah. And then after that, we can move in this progressive yes. direction. Yes, right? exactly. That's part of that's the ex- argument. That's that he's exactly making. it. That's exactly it. And like Peter, what Peter was saying is also exactly it. It's like he is running as the third term Obama, essentially. He is saying, like, Remember, I was this cool VP. Obama selected me. You know, he's he's not saying it explicitly, but that's obviously the vibe that everybody is getting. And I think the poll numbers are indicative of that. I mean, I've talked to many people over the last couple of years who even before way before he announced or any anything like that, he um, you know, I'd ask random people, why do you like Joe Biden or who are you you know going to support? And they say Joe Biden. Um, and it's always tied with. Well, Obama selected him, you know, more times than not. That is like what people say all, you know, just anecdotally. Um, But I think that's interesting because it's a return to kind of the, you know, near near past, um, whereas Trump's was, you know, returned to the much longer ago past. (laughs) As he has Biden pledged and I can't remember if I saw this or if I made it up as my story of my life has (laughs) Biden pledged to only be president for this one term he hasn't he hasn't he hasn't in my mind no yeah that was a question that people were wondering Uh about but he yeah he didn't um uh who out of the 22 (laughs) out of the 22 who has surprised you in the sense of this person launched and you either thought they were gonna do great yeah or uh, this person launched and you thought they were gonna really sink and be forgotten and here they are so two surprises come immediately to mind one is elizabeth warren who i thought would do great um i thought because she's a woman and we're you know following the year of the woman with hillary's loss and all that um and the midterm success of women that she would take the mantle where bernie had it yeah. and would follow the progressive trend of the the party direction but she would be the you know embodied you know in a in a female form yeah. um so i really thought she was going to be like first out of the gate front runner and she was the first to announce um and got a bump from that and got but her her campaign has been up and down i think everybody's sort of noticed that the highs and lows that have come out of it um so that was my biggest surprise there my biggest surprise for a 
person emerging is Pete Buttigieg, yeah. who I think a lot of people are now kind of saying, oh, wow, this guy is somebody to pay attention to. Um, although I will say I, f- I followed the DNC race when he ran for DNC chair um, and he he interested me back then. And I thought, wow, this this guy is somebody who could really, you know, take off I, if he runs. I just want to point out we had him in studio during that race. Oh, uh, did you? Yeah, oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Sitting in this guy. very chair. Sitting in the chair you're in right now. <laughs> so you guys, I mean, you guys noticed him, too. So I think we're we're OK on him. Um, but yeah, he's he's I think he's how how well he's doing just mm-hmm. broadly, how fast he's been able to climb in some of those polls is, is surprising. Um, yeah. One of the other things that I think is worth pointing out that we've talked about with you before, Hannah, is, you know, this time uh, uh, in the 2008 presidential election mm-hmm. and leading up to that, you know who the number one uh, leading all the polls for the Republicans were at that point. It was. Rudy Giuliani. Oh, yeah. that's right. So it's just a reminder that, like, yeah, it's very, very early, and yeah. I and I and I say that to, or with regards to uh, whether it's Buttigieg mm-hmm. or Elizabeth Warren. Like, you have seen Elizabeth Warren coming on a little stronger here in some recent polls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and I think that, you know, this is interesting where we are right now. But until we get to the debates and see how people handle themselves. Um, those who make the debates. Those who make the debates. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Those who make <laughs> Almost debates. all of them have made it, in fairness. Almost. Yeah. So, in other words, you're saying that we could be sitting here uh, a year from now and talking about Michael Bennett as a uh, as a front runner, and he was just uh, yeah. number twenty-two. Oh my gosh! Or Steve Bullock, who hasn't oh, even announced yet. Announced? Not yet. Not yet. A couple yet weeks. Okay, yeah. so that's coming. Co- yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I can't wait. Although Montana's lovely. I yeah. Have to say. Yeah. Montana. Sure. Why you'd want to leave Montana, uh, he, I am not sure. I don't think Steve Bullock had much to do with that. With making it lovely. Making He's it lovely. keeping it lovely. It is kind of interesting, right? Like when we talk about all this like uh, grouping of um, white male politicians mm. who are getting in like at the last minute. Yeah. You know, yeah. we saw this avalanche of like uh, Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala yeah. Harris, Cory Booker, uh, all of these uh, new faces yeah. uh, running for president. And then now at the end is when you see all of the white men get yeah. it. I think yeah. it's kind of funny. Except Terry McAuliffe. Except oh, that's he right. decided McAuliffe. to sit it out. Yeah. He said no. Uh, it has surprised me to see Cory Booker, the mm-hmm. senator from New Jersey, yeah. not he hasn't really had a moment yet uh, in in this race. And again, it's early and we'll see what happens yeah. in the debates. But as someone who's such a talented and charismatic politician, yes. uh, I I thought that he would be within the top yeah. uh, echelon. There. Top tier. Yeah, top definitely. Tier. I mean, he was one of the most I agree with that. He was one of the most widely requested surrogates in 2018 to go out for all of those down ballot candidates and that to me at the time spoke to his broad appeal like he could go to Montana and speak for somebody he could go to South Carolina you know he went all over um, and was really well received all over when when he was campaigning for other people so it's interesting to see that um, campaigning not translating into his own mm-hmm. his own uh, campaign you know all of the uh, candidates now just by the very nature of their being like 22 yeah uh, have obviously relatively small staffs mm-hmm. um, but who do you think in in covering this race who do you think has the best infrastructure in place uh, because to run a long campaign and yeah. to run a competitive campaign it takes good staff yeah uh, it takes a good ground game it takes a a very strong operation in some of the key states, Iowa, New Hampshire, yes. South Carolina. Um, are, are 
what kind of focus mm-hmm. are the campaigns putting on that piece of of the work and are they having challenges in really building out um, uh, that kind of apparatus given the fact that there are is so much competition yeah. for staff and yeah. for resources and really kind of just the the basic tools you need in order yeah. to have a successful campaign. That's a re- that's a really interesting question, and I I really like looking at that kind of stuff because I think that where a lot of the best talent goes is where you can get an indication of who's you know maybe doing going to do well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think two things. I mean, mentioning we were mentioning Elizabeth Warren not necessarily doing well in the polls and everything, although she is climbing in some. Um, I think she has a great great staffing operation she's really i don't know know the exact figures but she's staffed up really early she spent a lot of money on it um which could be a gamble you know if it does if her her sort of um standing in the race doesn't catch up to where she's staffed up to Mm -hmm. um but she's got really talented people working for her in a bunch of different states i'm from new hampshire we were discussing and i um i noticed early like in in the midterm she was kind of poaching people to work for her early on and it was all very like under the radar Mm -hmm. and stuff but those those people are coming in handy now obviously she's the neighboring state there um, and Kamala Harris, I would also say, is has nabbed a lot of those um, Hillary staffers who are, you know, obviously Hillary ended up losing, but they sh- clearly won the primary and um, they're very familiar with like what to do in a national campaign. And she has, I think, by and large, like the most Hillary, <laughs> former Hillary people on her team. Um, so they kind of know, you know, what to do. Yeah. And then. Um, other people, it's kind of like a mishmash. Uh, you know, Bernie's campaign, he has some people that he had last time, like his um, his s- senior sort of communications person is with him again. Nina Turner, who's one of his advisors, is with her, him again. Um, and, you know, those people are skilled and, and quite competent and know what they're doing. Um, but he's also brought on like newer people. And um, yeah, so it's kind of kind of a mashup there. As you're covering the campaigns and, and talking to some of the campaign staff and, and the candidates, what do you sense is their understanding mm-hmm. of the greatest challenge that running against Trump presents? Mm. Because he's, as we've been saying, obviously, a very different kind of president, a yeah. very different kind of candidate who's going to be seeking reelection. How are they planning to... Um, and what kind of strategies are they devising? How are they positioning themselves to take on Trump? Yeah, I think that's that's a good question. I think thus far, I haven't um, really gone into too much about how they're going to take on Trump in the early stages of their launch. I think it's been mostly, and they, um, you know, to their kind of credit, they sort of dodge those kinds of questions anyways mm-hmm. because they want to say, like, we're just introducing ourselves to voters. We don't want to talk about him and voters don't ask us about him. So they're kind of... Um, doing that on their own and then their reporters aren't necessarily asking that right now because you know it's kind of like the early launch launch stage that being said I do think as the debates get closer we're gonna see like firsthand regular people watching are gonna see sort of how um, they will contrast themselves from mm-hmm. Trump because they will potentially be on the debate stage with Trump whoever's the nominee obviously so it's like um, you know they're they're we're seeing subtle things we're, we're seeing subtle attacks like on Twitter you know campaigns will defend themselves if Trump goes after them like Elizabeth Warren or Kamala or whoever um, Biden obviously is like a big goes back and forth with Trump and everything so um, but just the challenge of dealing with just the barrage of misinformation yeah that yeah. comes out of Trump and the way he belittles the candidates with all of these nicknames yeah it's a real puzzle for 
if you respond to him, yeah, then he's already the winning because you're thing. defending yourself. Yeah. So have any of them so far, and I, I understand Charlie, cracked that problem of how do you <laughs> do this in a way that that gives you an advantage? Well, so the closest thing I can think of that, which wasn't an advantage, but I think they thought it was going to be, was when Elizabeth Warren did the DNA rollout. I mean, that's like the first and foremost thing that they did to directly take on Trump, so to speak, mm-hmm. without mentioning him. Um, obviously, it's like something that he poked at her, poked at her, and then she did this, and then it totally backfired. Yeah. So I wonder if, and I haven't asked campaigns this, but I'm kind of curious just thinking about it, if campaigns are looking at something like that and think, you know, this was a direct you know, version of her of, of a candidate taking on Trump and like, look how it backfired. So maybe we need to do something different if we try and do, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but that's that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Speaking of debates, you mentioned the debates and somebody potentially being on stage with Trump. Mm-hmm. What is the probability <laughs> of there not being any debates? Because Trump already said something to the extent of if they were not going to have a Fox News debate yeah, and I have no right. use for them that's or right. some version yeah. of that. Oh, God. Has well, that been set in stone? I no, mean, are we going I, down a road where we're not going to have the debates of how we think of them? In it's, I mean, I think the Democrats, the, the those who did say, you know, the DNC officially sort of adopted the platform, we're not going to do the Fox News debates. And I think that was met with some backlash because we see the candidates themselves now going on Fox News. Bernie Sanders going and doing the Fox News town hall. Um, Kirsten Gillibrand is doing one coming up. They've all sort of made appearance. A lot of them have made appearances on Fox News and various like news programs. So I think that might be changed in the future. I mean, I don't know. It's I I don't want to like predict the wrong thing, but it's kind of I think it could be a slippery slope because like there are some like we were mentioning earlier, those Bernie Sanders, um, Joe Biden, Trump voter base, um, at least angling for that voter base. Um, a lot of those people are Fox News viewers. So I think it might be a little bit of a um, short sighted thing not and to do let it. Let me just ask you quickly before we go. What is the danger in our campaigns preparing for the possibility that if Trump loses, he won't accept the election results? That's, oh, that's the piece interesting. that keeps me up at night. That's interesting. Um, the first thing I think of with that is. Russia yeah. interference and the only person that comes to mind in terms of prioritizing that is Amy Klobuchar uh. so take that for what it's <laughs> worth but nobody's really talking about election interference except well, her. I hope some people are thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> Hannah Trudeau is a political reporter uh, formerly of the National Journal now and soon to be of the Daily Beast. Hannah thank you so much. I'm Igor Volsky author of Guns Down. One more plug. Buy it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, it's been great to share this Friday morning with you. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. This is the Bill Press Show.